Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, my name is Ian Drake, and this is the New Books Network. We are joined today by Seth Barrett Tillman. He is a professor, associate professor, at uh, Maynooth University in County Kildare, Ireland. And he joins us today to discuss two articles, one of which has been published recently, and uh, the other will be published in March of 2022. And they are related to a historical episode in 1809 in North Carolina. The first article is, What Oath, If Any, Did Jacob Henry Take in 1809? And the second article is, A Religious Test in America, the 1809 Motion to Vacate Jacob Henry's North Carolina State Legislative Seat, a reevaluation of the primary sources. Both of these articles, I should note, will have links to them on the podcast page once this episode is posted. Seth, thank you so much for joining us on the New Books Network. Thanks. I appreciate your having me. So these are uh, two articles related to an episode where in the North Carolina State Legislature in 1809, there was an attempt to prevent an elected official from taking his seat. And you have a uh, particular take on why this occurred and what it means historically. So why don't you explain uh, what happened to Jacob Henry in 1809? Well, let me just say, I I certainly have a revisionist account, but what it means historically might be a bigger question than my pay grade allows. And I'll I'll let the reader and the listener decide for themselves if I do that. So the story originates with the American Revolution and uh, the Continental Congress called for the state legislatures to pass new constitutions to accommodate independence and the loss of royal officers. And North Carolina did just that. Interestingly enough, North Carolina was one of several states that had a religious test. Uh, the religious test used some very obscure language, and that language is still debated today what it, what it means. But among the other language it used was it, it uh, precluded those who denied the truth of the Protestant religion um, quote unquote, from holding a particular group of offices. And it used some very obscure language with regard to office. And as a matter of fact, I have to say it was that obscure language that attracted me uh, to study this particular incident because I, I've been exploring the, the meaning of the office language of the U.S. Constitution um, in, in, in other articles prior to doing this. And this is how I, I came across the episode, uh, <clears throat> the incident. So, uh, so this language is there. And uh, in 1808, uh, a fellow named Jacob Henry, uh, probably born in South Carolina, but his family immigrated to North Carolina, uh, was elected to the state legislature. He was probably born in 1776, maybe 1775. Um, and he was ostensibly Jewish, though the record is a little unclear. Uh, it seems at least Henry thought of himself as Jewish. And again, I leave it to the listener or the reader, you know, what that might have meant to Henry or what that might have meant to his contemporaries. And nobody noticed. Um, in 1809, he's reelected. He takes his seat. And then uh, several weeks after he's qualified or apparently qualified, that is when the members took their oath, he's already in his seat. Uh, there's an objection. Uh, there's another member. 
He's from Carteret County, Jacob Henry, but another member from Rockingham County, met a fellow named Mills, UC Mills, um, put forward a motion to have the seat vacated. And uh, this motion quoted the language of uh, Article 32, the religious test. Uh, it suggests that Henry denied the truth of the Protestant religion, and it's, it also suggested he refused to take the oath prescribed by law. All right, so that sets up the problem. And we only, we, the basic information of these events comes from a two-paragraph entry in the North Carolina Legislative Journal. And the journal doesn't have any debate. The journal just tells us the member's qualified. Hugh, uh, Hugh Mills brought his motion. Uh, it tells us that the debate was sent to the Committee of the Whole. The Committee of the Whole recommended against uh, the motion being accepted, and then when the motion returned to the uh, to the full legislative chamber, the lower house of the, of the legislature, uh, the, what was called the House of Commons at the time, uh, they accepted the recommendation and Henry kept his seat. But we don't really have from the, this core two paragraphs of documents any real knowledge of what happened because in those days, state legislatures didn't keep the track of their debates. They weren't reported as part of the legislative record. Uh, and so one of the oddities of this story is there are many grand claims about what happened uh, on November 20th when the members took their oath and then on December 5th and 6th when uh, the motion was debated. But it's often very unclear where the various historians are getting their information from because it's surely not from the journal. Our earliest record of Henry's speech, Henry gave a speech in his own defense at the beginning of these proceedings. The motion was made on December 5th, 1809. Uh, the proceedings in earnest began December 6th. Henry is basically the first to talk. He gives a well-received speech where he talks about grand principles of toleration, of equality under the law, all, all, all Jeffersonian principles that, that you know ring true to a, what you might call the American I- ideal. And... Uh, the first report of it is in 1814 that, that is, you know, widely known. So there's a little bit of a gap in the record between 1809 and 1814 where this earliest report came from. Uh, and there are other problems with the historical record, which is that some of the legislative records don't seem to have their names quite right. It makes it a little bit difficult to understand who spoke when, uh, who made the various motions. Uh, other records don't report his name as Jacob Henry. Uh, sometimes he's reported as Henry Jacobs. Uh, sometimes the events are reported as 1808 rather than 1809. Sometimes they're reported as 1810. Uh, and not just all the, the reports, that is, we know very few facts of what happened. And yet it's not, it's interesting that many historians have very, very different takes on what the meaning of these events are. Uh, and there are a wide group of historians and other academics uh, who have had occasion to write on the Jacob Henry incident, even though you don't see any full-length treatments because there isn't enough for a full-length treatment. So you'll see the Jacob Henry incident developed in uh, discussions of Southern regional history or of North Carolina history, uh, sometimes in Jewish history or emancipation history, and probably most often in in studies that do church-state history. And uh, as I said, not all the facts are agreed on, and it's often very unclear what the origins of those facts are because there's a gap in the record from 1809 to 1814 when Henry's speech is first reported. And uh, uh, it, <clears throat> some historians look at these events and see Henry Jacobs, this courageous fighter, 
uh, for toleration. And sometimes he's described as a person who stands up for, you know, um, sort of like an early civil rights leader for Jewish rights. Uh, and other times that the Henry incident is seen as uh, uh, indicative of widespread acceptance and toleration. And that's why it was accepted. So sometimes the glass is half empty and sometimes it's half full. That is, Henry Henry benefited from greater toleration in 1809, and that's why he prevailed ultimately. Uh, uh, and sometimes people say, no, no, the reason Henry was put in this spot is because it was an intolerant time. Uh, so uh, uh, I'll give you a, a, an example that, that I found striking. Uh, Jacob Rader Marcus, who's often considered sort of the dean of, of Jewish history, uh, already passed away, described Henry as having consulted with Christian jurists, and he uses the plural. And it's not at all clear who um, uh, Marcus was talking about. That is, Marcus was suggesting that Henry had help, not just from other members, but from members qua Christian members. Whereas another historian named Meacham categorized or characterized the, these events as a standoff uh, between Henry and Christian lawmakers, which is kind of odd because some of the better reports we have suggest that Henry prevailed in a unanimous vote. Um, Another commentator describes the contest between Henry and the people who objected to his continuing in his seat uh, as a prolonged contest, which is odd because the whole contest only lasts one day. All right. So, so there's a number of, uh, there's a number of puzzles here. um, And when in the standard narrative, people have tried to explain why Henry prevailed. And uh, in terms of the historical analysis, there's what you might call the politics explanation or the partisanship explanation. Uh, 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 there's the suggestion that, that Henry was uh, a Federalist and the objection was launched by Republican members. And the problem with that explanation, uh, the reason it never grabbed me, is this would mean that the Republicans are trying to throw a member out based on his religion. And it, it just doesn't seem to fit. Uh, so it, there might be an element of partisanship there, but it, it doesn't seem to quite fit with the ideology of the time. As a matter of fact, I would suspect that the Republican members, and, and Hugh C. Mills was a, was a Jeffersonian Republican, were probably a little upset about Mills for bringing this motion, even if they felt they had to defend one of their own in the legislature. There's other historians who suggest that it was a personality conflict between Henry and Mills or maybe another member, but there's no real account for that. Um, other, other historians have tried to say that Henry prevailed because of his speech. And the speech was well received. And it was, as, as I discovered, it was reported in many American newspapers. But the interesting thing is, and this is my small contribution, was those newspaper reports were not exactly contemporaneous with the underlying events. That is, they, they didn't come out in the, in, on December 5th or 6th in North Carolina or even immediately after. They were basically delayed about a, a month and this is why I think that many of the reports of the Jacob Henry case don't reflect the facts that were known in the 1820s, but when they came down to us, it was unclear to us where those facts were first reported from. They were reported in newspapers, not just North Carolina newspapers, but um, other, other newspapers in the United States, but they weren't contemporaneous, and for a long time they were lost to the historical discussions. Other people tried to explain uh, uh, the, the, the reason Henry prevailed uh, was because of the office language used in Article 32. That is, Article 32 only applied to a certain group of positions. 
And there was an argument uh, that was launched by another member named Gaston, who eventually became a, uh, a justice on the Supreme Court of North Carolina, that that office language uh, did not extend to members of the legislature. And many historians have subsequently said that this was the reason Henry prevailed. But there's no explanation how they know that. That is, how do they know the reason the members voted the way they did? And how do they identify that that was the reason? And that seems odd. And also, a, a fair number of historians, and, and not just historians, but, but legal experts, had said that this argument was far-fetched. Uh, as a matter of fact, there's a, 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 a publication by the now Chief Justice of North Carolina describing this argument as strange, as odd. Which, which I think is kind of odd that they would do that because it's on a very obscure position. And, and to say that a legal argument is odd when there's no on-point judicial exposition seems to me to be not quite in keeping with the way legal arguments usually done. As a matter of fact, the, the argument that Gaston made about the office language that was used in Article 32 is, a, is in fact very close to, very, to arguments that were made in the U.S. Senate in the first impeachment when a U.S. senator was impeached. And the argument was made that the impeachment clause of the U.S. Constitution only addressed proper offices and members of Congress were members and not officers. So there's like a double mystery there, which is how did they know this argument was made? Why do so many think that it was a far-fetched argument? And why do other people think this is the argument on which Henry actually prevailed unless you have some records of why the members voted as they did? Uh, and another argument that appears in the, in the extant literature is that the debate between or the conflict between Henry and, and Mills or Henry and the other members wasn't so much politics in the sense of party politics, politics but was more of a, a regional coastal elite uh, that Henry represented from Carteret County versus the backcountry yeoman farmers uh, who uh, 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 were, uh, for a variety of reasons, uh, uh, trying to uh, lead the country in lead North Carolina, excuse me, in a different direction. Uh, the, again, that argument has been made. Uh, there, the evidence of it is the counties the various speakers came from, but it's not clear why this particular issue uh, would grab the members and why they would divide as they did, especially because if the argument is there was division between a coastal elite and yeoman farmers, it does appear that on the final vote, if Henry didn't prevail unanimously, he certainly prevailed with a very strong majority. So there, there are a number of enigmas here, which is why were people commenting on it when the public sources were extremely very limited? Um, uh, why people thought they knew the uh, reasons Henry prevailed when there was very little evidence of, of, of their reasoning and why they voted as they did. Um, so <clears throat> I, I, I took the position that uh, there were other sources to be found. And... Um, uh, it was a little bit of a, a detective work, but as I already hinted, I started re-examining uh, North Carolina newspapers, but newspaper reports of these events that I discovered existed after December 20th, I'm sorry, after December 5th and 6th, when the debate took place. And what I found is there was a, sort of an extended set of reported debates. It wasn't all in one uh, one, one newspaper report, but in, in several editions going on. And what I came across was... Uh, was a report of the debate on December 6th that really sounded like Sergeant Schultz, I know nothing, which is that people kept asking the members, what did you see Henry swear over? What book did you see? Do you know if he's Jewish? Were the questions. Uh, 
uh, do you know if he eats pork? And and these questions were, you know, you, you began to wonder if they were seriously meant or if they were meant more to show how odd or less uh, uh, less than desirable for the members to be put in the position of asking these questions. That, that is, they were trying to show we don't like being in the position of being inquisitors. We're asking silly questions to show that. It's very difficult to tell what the real motivation of these questions were. But in terms of the answers, the answers of the various members was, we don't know what religion the man has or what book he swore on. No one. It's, it's almost as if no one in the chamber knew him. And it seems to me that one of the reasons Henry prevailed wasn't because of the strength of his speech, egalitarian Jeffersonian principles, wasn't because of deep norms that uh, attracted the members of the assembly or even the more technical legal arguments. But when it came down to the, the what you might call the evidence presented to the committee of the whole, when they were asked, did you see Henry deny or did you hear Henry say anything that denied the truth of the Protestant religion? No one seemed to know anything. And so what happened is the committee reported back, the case wasn't proved. And then the, the full house voted um, and they voted uh, to reject the motion. And in, in, in other words, one way of thinking about this is there was no grand acceptance of new toleration norms. Uh, it might be there was just a, a lack of evidence of what Henry believed or didn't believe, combined with the fact that maybe the members were embarrassed slightly to be put in the position of examining a fellow member uh, uh, with regard to what might be seen as more private questions about religion. Uh, it's a little difficult to tell, but I, I, th- I think the newspaper reports bear out that some of the members were very, very uncomfortable with asking these questions. So, so were these... Yeah, I'm sorry. Up there and let you... Uh, Just a question about the newspaper reports themselves. Um, These uh, newspaper reports are in the form of, are they mostly, are are they summaries or paraphrasing or are there actual kind of transcript-like accounts? They're reported as transcript-like with the names of the speaker and with what they said. Uh, I can't say that there's any attempt to gather every word or that whether we gathered every speaker, but, but the debate was actually quite extensive. And I have to say that I was extremely impressed with the quality of the legal debate, which was only on one day's notice. Uh, and uh, as a matter of fact, I'll, I'll tell you something that, that sort of happened in the, as part of the editorial process. I, I wrote actually in the article that in my judgment as a lawyer, uh, I'm a lawyer trained in law, that since the motion was made on December 5th, and these were the arguments of the various members developing points of North Carolina constitutional law and, and related law on one day's notice, I thought the arguments were quite well-reasoned and quite impressive. And, and one of the, uh, one of the uh, evaluators, uh, one of the referees of the article said, well, there's no reason you should be surprised that the, these, these people are in Hickseth and, and Gaston went to Georgetown. And, and, I, I have to say what I felt, and I don't think I was wrong, a sensitivity that I was criticizing uh, these debaters by su- suggesting that the reason it was impressive was I, I I had a sneering and condescending attitude when it was really just the opposite. What I was saying was these arguments are impressive no matter who, not no matter who made them. I, I wasn't judging them at all in the sense of their personalities, their education. I was just saying these arguments look to me very strong. And you, you know what I mean? I, I wonder whether to this day that that is sort of indicative of, now, and I don't know who the evaluator was, the, the feelings that um, there still is a feeling among 
some uh, that the the South and Southern history is is wounded, uh, uh, and therefore there's sort of a, 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 a an ability or a willingness to see a critique or a criticism when it in fact isn't really there. And as a matter of fact, writing these papers, I, I learned some very odd things, not directly related to the Henry incident, that that uh, I really didn't know before about American history. I'll, I'll give you another example. One of the things I've learned is that it wasn't very uncommon in the uh, early Republic that when uh, a head of family or a couple were, were getting on in life, they would sell their house or property or business often to another family member, and they would move west to the frontier for one last great adventure. And I saw that repeatedly with many of the people involved in the Henry incident, including sort of Henry himself, who just a few years after these events sold his sold his house to one of his children, uh, who was a cabinet maker, and then moved back to South Carolina uh, and, and lived out his life in Charleston. Uh, what age was Henry when he did this? Uh, he... I, let's see. That would have been around, I think, 18, uh, 18. So he would have been late middle age by then, not old, but... There were quite a few other people who you saw this. So, for example, the the chair of the committee of the whole, who was had like twenty five years of uh, legislative service, who was a general. Uh, uh, late in life, he just sells his house, leaves North Carolina, goes to Tennessee, where he serves one or two terms in the legislature and actually is speaker. Uh, Henry's editor in the North Carolina newspaper that reported uh, that reported these events. Uh, fellow named Henderson. Uh, he, nearing the end of his life, sells his newspaper and he goes out west and amazingly, <laughs> amazingly, uh, almost drowns in a river. And the person who should see him drowning will be uh, what will be Andrew Johnston's father, the president, who sees this old man drowning, saves him and dies in the process. And Andrew Johnson, as a result, grows up an orphan. I mean, it's amazing how close people were, not six degrees of separation, but one or two in a way that I wasn't just aware of. And, and, and one other thing that I discovered is that almost all the people involved in the Jacob Henry incident, particularly the speakers in the legislative floor and the various office holders in the legislature, they were all in the military, either the American military or the North Carolina militia. And so many of them were high officers, generals, lieutenant colonels, colonels, majors, captains. It's just amazing. I mean, everybody was in the military, it seemed, as part of this story, including Jacob Henry, who was a captain in the War of 1812. Uh, and one of the oddities is that one of the historians involved in the Jacob Henry incident who reports on this, one of the well-known historians, actually says not only was Henry an officer in the War of 1812, but he was actually in the military in 1776, which doesn't make any sense at all because he was probably born in 1775. So anyway, that's the, that's the first paper I wrote. Uh, that that paper was concerned largely not with the events of November twentieth, uh, which was you know what oath Henry took, but with the debates and with the reason Henry prevailed on the motion, and you'd think that those debates would be a reflection of what happened on November twentieth. You'd think that uh, you'd, you'd think that's the way that the debate would develop, uh, but. There were aspects of the uh, the discussions in November fifth and sixth, those debates that that didn't quite sit right with me, and that that led me to write a second paper. And this second paper wasn't about the debates and why Henry prevailed on the motion, but what actually happened on the floor of November twentieth, eighteen o nine. That is, 
Mills, one of Mills' objections was that Henry didn't take the oath prescribed by law. And if you read the various historians on this event, they take that to mean two different things. Some historians say Henry didn't take the oath at all because Article 32, they say, was a religious oath and a religious test, and he just refused, and that's what Mills was objecting to. But other people suggest, well, it's not that he didn't take the oath, it's that he didn't hold a copy of the Christian Bible. And the problem with both of these views is there's no clear record of either of these things happening. Do you understand what I'm saying? All right. That, that is, we, we've got we've got no one on the floor telling us what book Henry was holding or what he said or didn't say. And it's really quite amazing. That is, that historians are willing to go out on a limb and say Henry didn't take any oath strikes me as, you know, a very, very strong claim to make, particularly if they don't have anything, you know, any, any sort of record to base it on. And uh, another problem with that story is that Article 32 is a religious test. It says that, you know, uh, a person can't have particular offices in the state of North Carolina if he denies the truth of the Protestant religion. There are a few other requirements, too, a few other ways to lose one's position. But it actually isn't an oath, right? That is, that is, it's a test. It's a religious test. But it doesn't specify what the oath is uh, uh, a person having an office uh, uh, in North Carolina should take, that determination was left to the legislature. And one of the, the strangest oddities about the Jacob Henry literature, and it's developed by, as I said at the beginning, earlier on, all sorts of historians from all sorts of fields, and not just historians, but legal commentators too, is nobody seems to d- actually write in their books or in their articles, this was the oath that was enforced at the time. That is, what was the statutory oath that members were supposed to take? The one that some historians say either Henry didn't take or the one they he should have taken, and whether or not he had to hold a copy of the Christian Bible. So I decided actually to look it up, which is a little tricky when you live in Ireland and most of the good archival records are in North Carolina. But fortunately, it's not impossible, uh, especially because a lot of a lot of records today are not now online, uh, and the Hathi Trust is just you know, perhaps one of the greatest sources of uh, uh, American primary documents that exists today. It's better than anything I know in the United States. Uh, And so what I did is I tried to track down uh, the oaths that were required. And the first thing I came across was the the post-independence 1777 judicial oath. That is, one of the things the state legislature had to do right after the revolution, even before they rewrote the constitution, or around the time they wrote the state constitution, was they needed a new oath for judicial practice. And uh, the 1777 oath for judicial proceedings didn't use anything like what had been uh, the, the prevailing practice in the English world. The prevailing practice in the English world was oaths would end with something along the lines on the true faith of a Christian or on the faith of a true Christian, something like that. That is, uh, English oaths, British oaths, were overtly Christological, which posed many problems for people who wouldn't take those oaths, including Jews. Uh, later in 1777, well, first of all, the judicial oath was not uh, what was Christological. It, it had references to uh, uh, to Christian theology, uh, but it, it didn't expressly prohibit non-Christians from taking it. And as a matter of fact, they were exemptions in the, in the statute for people who didn't want to take this slightly Christological oath. 
All right, that was the judicial oath. Then later in 1777, in the next session of the legislature, the legislature passed another oath, and this was the oath for members of the legislature. And this oath had no Christological requirements as far as I could tell. That is, it, it, it only ended with, so help me God. There was no overt test for, for Christianity or for Protestantism. It was slightly theistic. Uh, it required the person to take it in verbal form and to take it in written form. Uh, and we actually have a record of that oath from the 1777 legislature online. And it, it was an oath about commitment to the revolution and its principles and not accepting the, the rule of Great Britain. And that's where things stood until 1791 when the oaths were rewritten again. And although the oaths were rewritten, again, they were not overtly Christological. Uh, The 1791 state statute required members to take the federal oath because the new constitution, the new federal constitution had been passed, which is not overtly Christological. It had a state oath, which required loyalty to the state. It it had an opt-out for those who didn't want to use the so help me God language, which, you know, is fairly advanced thinking, I suppose. And it had a, a final anti-conflicts oath with regard to taking benefits in office, and that also ended with so help me God language. Okay, so I, I, I'm sort of telling the story from my point of view, that is my point of view as a researcher. I was trying to find out what the oath was. And it, it seemed to me after researching it, what I basically came to was that the oath that Henry had to take in 1809 was the 1791 oath. Now, if that's in fact true, and I think it is, that poses a real puzzle. Because if the oath wasn't a Christological oath, and if the oath didn't require to him to hold a copy of the New Testament, then what was the problem? Why didn't he just take the oath? And if someone thought he didn't take the oath, why didn't he just retake it? Why didn't he just say he took the oath? Do you, do you understand that is, if the story is that, that Henry didn't take the oath that was required by statute because it was Christological. But when you look up the statute, it's not. And if, if, the, if the alternative story is, well, maybe the oath wasn't Christological, but he was required to hold a copy of the New Testament, there's nothing in the oath saying you have to hold a book. And there's an opt-out for people who are uncomfortable taking the standard oath anyway. So th- there's a puzzle here, which is that there should have been no problem with Henry, assuming he was Jewish, taking the oath because the oath wasn't anything more than theistic. And if, if, if the problem was he was against theism, he certainly didn't tell us. Uh, and that, that led me to believe that the story with regard to the oath is really wrong. Uh, that historians basically didn't understand what happened. That is, they saw the religious test as ar- in Article 32, which was Christological, and they assumed that the oath that was passed by the legislature under its influence would also be Christological. But that, in fact, did not happen. And if it didn't happen, we have a bigger puzzle on our hands, which is what oath did Henry actually take and why was there any conflict about that oath? And I've walked away from this thinking that the, the story on Jacob Henry is, well, uh, for lack of a better way of putting it, has, has what you might call a little bit of Greek tragedy or perhaps pathos in it. I think what happened with Henry is really surprising. I think what Henry did is he took the standard oath. He was not holding a copy of the Jewish Bible or uh, any traditional uh, Jewish book. If he did, I don't think there would have been any problem. I think the problem was when Henry took the standard oath, which was not Christological, he was in fact holding a copy of the Christian Bible uh, or the New Testament, 
as, as Christians call it. Uh, and that was perceived after the fact by Mills and perhaps the people who opposed Henry, the fact that he held what you might call not the wrong book, but the wrong book for him as a kind of lie or as a kind of fraud. And that was the heart of their objection. And that also explains why in December 5th and 6th, Henry didn't testify, and also why nobody could seem to remember what he did. Because those people who didn't want Henry to lose office didn't want Henry to testify. Uh, uh, And certainly, certainly an argument arguments like that had been made. That is, around the same time this happened in North Carolina, there was a very similar incident in Lower Canada uh, with a fellow named Ezekiel Hart. Ezekiel Hart was elected to the legislature, I think also in 1808. Uh, He came in, uh, tried to uh, uh, take the the oath required in the British legislature, in in, in the Quebec legislature, holding a copy of the Jewish Bible. There were objections to that. Uh, His seat was declared vacant. He came back. He tried to take it on the Christian Bible, and that was declared to be sort of fraudulent. Uh, so I, I think this sort of explains uh, what happened in the events. That is, there was a desire by the people who supported Henry to obfuscate by having discussions about law rather than to discuss the actual facts of what happened that day. And the fewer facts that were on the table the easier it was for Henry to maintain his seat. And that also explains, I think, a, a lot of other facts about Henry. And I think it explains why he didn't run for office again. I think it also explains why he led a very quiet life after this in South Carolina and why he died actually without an obituary, which isn't really something that I've remarked on, but but other historians have remarked on in a surprising way, because Henry was seen later on as a, a, as a, a and this event was seen as influential. I, I think Henry didn't want this event inquired about too much. I think it was a little bit embarrassing for him. And I think also that one of the reasons he didn't run again for office was uh, he understood that his swearing um, the way he did um, could be seen by his constituents as an expression of distrust in them. That is, he didn't he was unwilling not to swear on any book and his willingness to swear on the new Testament was because he was afraid of what their reactions might be, which is sort of to spin the Henry story 180 degrees the other way. So go ahead. The, the paucity of sources on this, uh, raises an issue on the one hand, as you've been discussing, which is what in fact happened, what can we be certain of versus what must we uh, speculate about? Uh, Reasonable speculation, definitely in terms of assuming that the oath from 1791 is in fact the one that he uh, took. Um, And certainly innovative in, on your part in regard to uh, not innovative in the fictional sense, but innovative in the sense of looking into the logic of, the, the thrust of his defense of himself and why testimony was not forthcoming. What kind of broader lesson for historians do you think the lack of sources and the lack of access and the accounts premised upon the lack of access to these newspaper accounts that you've unearthed? What does what kind of moral lesson do you think might be there for historians? I, there's a lot of, 
there's a great desire of putting that square peg in the round hole. There really is among the historians of the legal commentators. That is that the Henry story has been made to fit every narrative out there imaginable. It really has. It's made to fit the narrative that uh, 1776 was a terrible time. But by the time you get to 1809, people are tolerant or no, 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 no. These people were terribly intolerant and Henry was a victim. And it wasn't until many years later that we moved towards, towards a more tolerant society and, and every other story in between. Um, and it also, I think, expresses what I think is one of the, the dangers of both comparative law and comparative history, which is that uh, there, there's this constant desire to compare these different incidents to one another and to find the trend rather than to see some of these inc- incidents completely stand out and don't fit with the others at all. And it's very hard to see that when you're only seeing the trend. Um, I, I think the Henry story is just bizarrely different from most of the other stories we tell about this period. Uh, and that would be true even if I'm wrong about the oath. Uh, but, but to me, the, the, you know, one of the great oddities is that, you know, well, I should say the oddities. Part of the reason I think other people haven't pressed this story and done more research is it's so small. That is, it's almost what they're saying. It's not worth our time to do a little bit more research. And they have just enough knowledge to make it fit in the broader narrative that they're developing. Um, and I think that happens a lot. It certainly happens on the law side. I can, I can tell you that too. It's not, I don't think this is unique to historians. I think this happens probably in a lot of fields. I've seen it happen in law, but I've seen it happen here. And it, it's, it's really amazing that you could look at commentator after commentator on the law side and on the history side, and they all tell you that the oath from 1809, Henry had an objection to it. He either didn't take it or he didn't use the, the, um, uh, the Christian Bible. And they do that with no basis at all. Now, it may be that my theory that he, you know, uh, actually took the oath and did it on the Christian Bible, it may be that I can't prove that. I certainly don't have a contemporaneous source saying that's what happened. I could only say that my inference, I think, makes more sense given that I, in fact, have unearthed what that oath was. Uh, but it's just an inference on my part. I can't prove that that's what actually happened. Um, so, I think there are a few uh, a few lessons to be taken from this story. Well, we've been joined today by Seth Barrett Tillman, and we have discussed two articles, one published in the North Carolina Historical Review from January of 2021 entitled, A Religious Test in America, the 1809 Motion to Vacate Jacob Henry's North Carolina State Legislative Seat, a Reevaluation of the Primary Sources, and a forthcoming article in the American Journal of Legal History, which will come out in March of 2022, entitled, What Oath, If Any, Did Jacob Henry Take in 1809, Deconstructing the Myths? Seth, thank you so much for joining us today on the New Books Network. Thank you so much, Ian.